This podcast is offered by Jikoji Zen Center on the web at jikoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Welcome to Jikoji. Midsummer, sunny day. This morning, I'd, I'd like to begin with a a question to you, or a question for you. Um, imagine, uh, if you would, a, um, a situation where you're uh, meeting with a young child who's inquiring about the meaning of life, about the purpose of life. and. That young person asks you, what could be conveyed to him or her about the basis of a good life? Imagine yourself in that situation where a young person asks you this very serious question how to lead, how to come to a fulfilled life, a meaningful life. Now I'd like you to, to uh, kind of turn this a little bit and uh, kind of split yourself in two and imagine that you you, the adult, are talking to you, the child, and you're asking that same question of yourself. How is it? What do I do? What can I do to, meet, to have a meaningful, fulfilled life? Now the child in yourself that you're talking to is ready to be taught. He's asking the question, or she is asking the question. Unlike an adult, unlike someone who has the, what can we call it, the accretions of identity, who has stabilized a persona or a way of negotiating the world. The child in you is pliable, it's ready to be taught, it's ready to change, it's ready to know. So we have this question that we're presenting, asking of ourselves the teachable part of ourselves, the childlike, ready part of ourselves. What, what shall we do? How shall we be? What values should we have to have a truly meaningful, flourishing, completed life? 
Not a small question. <laughs> I have a, a poem I'd like to share with you by a wonderful um, contemporary uh, poet. Uh, her name is Namoi um, Shihab Nye. Um, she's a wonderful poet and um, she writes with humor, like, um, like Billy Collins a little bit, but um, her poems go deep, go quite deep. So this poem is called um, Famous. Famous, this is Famous, by Naomi Nye. The river is famous to the fish. The loud voice is famous to silence, which knew it would inherit the earth before anyone said so. The cat sleeping on the fence is famous to the birds watching him from the birdhouse. The tear is famous briefly to the cheek. The idea you carry close to your bosom is famous to your bosom. The boot is famous to the earth, more famous than the dress shoe, which is famous only to floors. The bent photograph is famous to the one who carries it, and not at all famous to the one who is pictured. I want to be famous to shifting men who smile while crossing streets, sticky children in grocery lines, famous as the one who smiled back. I want to be famous the way a pulley is famous or a buttonhole, not because it did anything spectacular, but because it never forgot what it could do. So we have this question before us, and what shall we do about it? What can we do? What are we able to do? Just, just the fact that we're here, meditating together, we're here, here at Chikoji Zen Center, means that we've, we've already acknowledged to ourselves a deep request. Whether we, whether we know it consciously or not, we have a deep request to become to become whole, to become real, to arrive at the totality of ourselves, to make a life of value. 
being here doing this kind of work of meditation and bringing to mind this practice mind uh, means that you're already asking this question of yourself. In, um, in this practice tradition, by the way, in the Zen practice tradition, we usually don't emphasize um, what's called fruition aspects. The aspects of, of this practice of meditation which um, comes out as manifestations in our in our life, and we do it. We do. We don't emphasize that so much because the the Zen or Chan tradition is very. You could say it's very pure. It does not want the experience of meditation to be um, disturbed by an idea of getting something or even even getting better. Um, it wants the experience of meditation to be just for itself. We have this term shikantaza, uh, silent illumination practice from Hongji. It's we sit for the sake of sitting and and we say that that's enough. But like all experiences and all thought, you could say, there's generative uh, influences, there's generative production. And other, uh, other traditions emphasize more what's called fruition practices, particularly the Tibetan, who have the various bhumis and stages and um, um, other traditions as well. And even in the Zen tradition, we, we talk about um, how, how in our daily life we can be, um, how the practice helps us to be more, to, to know what's going on, to come to knowledge. And it also helps us to be more compassionate, to understand the interrelationship of things, and to be connected and uh, not afraid to, to be involved with other beings and to help, help the whole situation, not just our individual selves. So these, are, these could be called fruition expressions of the, of the way. And uh, this, this morning I'd like to um, Again, talking about what we can do to have a meaningful life, a truly meaningful life. Um, I'd like to talk uh, about a couple more of these uh, fruition expressions of uh, the Buddha way. Um, are you with me so far? Ready, ready to go exploring? Okay, we're going to, together we're going to look at something called um, bodhicitta. 
um, and this might be a common term to some people or, or new, but uh, bodhi, bodhi means um, to awaken, to know, to come, to come to knowledge, to bring light to, that's bodhi, and citta means mind. So literally it means the mind that awakens. But it has a specific um, understanding in Buddhism. It is, it is the mind or the intention or the consciousness that aspires to, to bring forward um, clarity and connection in this world. It's, it's the mind that um, Pema, Pema children um, use this term, it's the mind of longing. It's the mind that actually intends and wills and asks to come, asks of itself to come forward and to do the work and to meet yourself and to actually drop away these accretions of identity and basically become real become an authentic being. That's bodhicitta. And it has other aspects that have to do specifically more with uh, the bodhisattva way and compassion, but I want to emphasize this aspect, the, the mind of aspiration. And it includes um, a, another um, specific word in Buddhism called cettana, and cettana means to actually choose, to actually consciously, directly make a choice. And um, again, we're here this morning, we've made a choice, we've made a choice to, um, to do this work, to hear, to hear this teaching. So you've, you've made an expression, just being here, you've made an expression of cetana. And it in, cetana is a kind of broad term and it includes um, will and um, uh, effort. And um, basically a sense of clear intention. So that's, um, all this is in, embraced in bodhicitta. So you can, you can have that term, I give it to you, <laughs> as if I could give anything. It's, carry this term with you, bodhicitta, it means the aspiration mind, the mind that aspires, that intends to be, uh, to be real. And so we can take this aspirational mind and we can apply it to um, certain aspects or topics of how we, uh, how we exist in the world. And the one I'd, li I'd like to bring our attention to, um, this is actually from the 
from what's called the four immeasurables. And the four immeasurables are, um, are, are basically love or loving kindness, to actually to love. And uh, that's called metta. And uh, the second one is mudita, which is uh, a sympathetic, compassionate, empathic connection with uh, everyone, with all things, um, with the whole situation being connected and feeling a sense of joy or uh, appreciative joy, of sharing joy. And the, um, the third one is called uh, karuna, which means um, compassion. Compassion, as it's translated, the word means to with, to suffer with, or to feel with another, another person or thing. We all know that word. Compassion is a kind of glitter word in um, in Buddhism. It's a, it's a big word in Buddhism. And um, the fourth one is called upeksha or equanimity. So with our uh, bodhicitta mind, um, oh, by the way, I should mention that uh, upeksha is also um, fits in another of these categories of Buddhism, uh, the four jhanas. Um, jhana means um, knowledge or meditative absorptions. And um, the meditative absorptions are meditative. The first one is meditative absorption that includes a discursive thought. And the second one is a um, the second jhana, it, um, it's called nirvikalpa jhana. It's meditative absorption um, without discursive thought. It's releasing that, and but still absorbed. And the fourth one is is nirvikalpa jhana, accompanied by um, joy and well-being. And the fourth jhana is the jhana of um, it's called, it's, it's uh, the jhana of equanimity or upeksha. And um, that's where there's complete composure and balance and stability. And that's the jhana, the upeksha the jhana, um, the jhana of equanimity. That's the jhana where the Buddha, it is said, that that's the jhana that the Buddha was in when he woke up. He was in equanimity, in the jhana of equanimity. And he, he had his um, seminal uh, enlightenment experience from this place. So let's, um, let's, take, a, let's take a look at, at equanimity and see if with our uh, with our bodhicitta mind, with our mind of aspiration, if we can take on, if we can take on this um, attribute or quality and make it um, part of what we are.
So here we are. What is equanimity? What is the apeksha jhana? What is, uh, what does it mean to be equanimous? No good or bad. No good or bad. A definition is, um, a kind of textbook definition is, Evenness of mind or temper, composure of spirit, calmness, steadiness, even amid trying circumstances. It also means fairness of mind, impartiality. It could be called specific neutrality. Equanimity be a place like like a sea that you can dwell in, but only for short periods. Because to act in the world without judgment would be to abandon all the work done to develop ethics. Thich Nhat Hanh had a um, a good uh, metaphor for this. It's uh, that we're walking in a woods, in a dense woods, and we see the particularity, the individual trees, the underbrush, whatever. We see the, we see the various aspects of choice, of, of preference, and so on. And he, he said it's like finding a, a, a raised clearing, like a hilltop, where you can see, you can see from quite a distance, and without abandoning the preferences, without abandoning the uh, individual trees that we're so fond of and partial to, we can see um, the whole forest. We can see this big view. It means to look over, actually, literally, uh, equanimity means to look, to overlook, or overlook sounds like to neglect. So, to look over rather than overlook. Yeah. Yeah. Did you? Um, I, I find the discussion really, really interesting, and I think maybe there's a way to um, refine it just a little bit, because some of these words can be ambiguous, like the concept of no good or bad is important. Um, the question of judgment and abdication of judgment is important. But I think that, um, at least to my own mind, um, equanimity does, is not the equivalent of moral relativism, nor is it the equivalent of the abdication of judgment. So it doesn't mean that we don't see things as good or bad. We're in, it doesn't mean that we're incapable of noticing that something is evil or wicked or cruel or painful. But um, it's about the way that it affects us. It's a state of ours in relation to that experience. So I think that's important because sometimes when people use these terms, um, 
it can be confusing because it sounds like it's an endorsement of moral relativism or abdication of judgment, that everything is good and everything's bad and that doesn't make any difference, or it could be that um, you know things are good and bad out there, but I'm just going to be in my little equanimous bubble feeling like a bodhisattva and it doesn't bother me. Well, in a way that's a little bit right, I think. I think that you, you maintain this stance of um, it's not impinging on the calmness and centeredness of your own mind, but it's not like you're blind to its qualities either. And that means that there's still a gateway where since you can identify it, you can still go through the gateway to act in the world, but without losing your state of equanimity. Like the, um, in the poem, you know, that sticky child in the waiting line, which isn't a very good, you know, situation because a sticky child might, <laughs> you know, be a problem for you. But um, to smile back, you know, when that child smiles at you. The thing, uh, the thing about uh, that we need to consider is these are. These are, on one on one level, these are natural expressions from practice. Um, uh, they happen, um, you could say, they could almost happen without effort. But they're also um, something we need to, with, the, with, our, with this bodhicitta mind, with the mind of aspiration, the mind of intent, we can actually put on, or we can try on. And it's like, um, like having a tool. This is equipment, you know. Can we use it? Can we use equanimity in, can we use this sense of composure to look over and to see that yes, these are, these are opposites. Their opposites exist. And I do have a preference for chocolate rather than vanilla or something like that. But um, I also have the mind, I'm also invoking the mind that can see that they're both ice cream and they're both cold and it's a hot day and I'm looking forward to eating whatever, <laughs> you know? That sense of, um, of the skillfulness of this um, aspect is, can help us address the question of what to do, what to do have a meaningful life. There is this uh, saying of the, of the middle way of being the non-contradiction of opposites. Opposites do exist, but they also, if we look at them, if we look at them clearly with the mind of equanimity, we can see that they, they're also, besides them being um, opposites and having con conflicting or different aspects to them, they also complement one another. As a matter of fact, they define one another. They can exist as a, as a distinctive, opposing, or even preferential practice without its opposite. They need the opposite to be. They're dependent on the opposite to be. So to have the mind 
that um, particularly when we see a kind of a rising of strong bias, when we see the, the accretion, uh, accretion aspect of our, of our identity, as I said before, kind of coalesce into a fixed view, into a preference that um, has, has no, um, has no uh, ability or uh, capacity to be of benefit either to yourself or to, or to, the whole, or to all of existence. It's just a block. Then uh, we can bring out this, this tool with our bodhicitta of equanimity and um, over, look over and see both sides and actually enjoy the, the spaciousness of that, um, of that view. Uh, there's a, back in um, the early stages of Buddhism, there's a, uh, in India, there was a period of, of um, intense flourishing of Buddhist uh, thought and scholasticism. And there were large universities. Narlanda was like the largest university in the world uh, for a long time um, in, in India. And there was a flourishing of Buddhism before the Mongol invasion. And um, there was a school called the Yogacharyan school, a scholastic school. And um, someone from the Yogacharyan school, this uh, teacher from the Yogacharyan school called um, um, Siramathi, um, looked at equanimity, like what equanimity was. And uh, Siramathi said, uh, there's, there's three aspects that make up this uh, idea of what equanimity is. So the, f the first one um, that he, um, there's also a teacher uh, named Nagano who, uh, who wrote an essay about this, who actually was a teacher to the founder of this temple. Um, Nagano was a teacher in uh, Kawazawa University in, and uh, Colton studied with Nagano. So we have a little connection there. So. Um, so these three aspects of equanimity, uh, one is called samatha in Sanskrit, samatha. And the root sam, sam, it's the same root as samadhi. You, some of you might know the root samadhi. Um, it means same, sameness. It means to see things despite their divergent qualities to see things as fundamentally the same, to see them as, as same. It's defined as um, equilibrium, equilibrium of the mind. The mind itself is in balance. 
Um, I'd like to read just a little bit from another uh, Yogacharian teacher called um, Asanga. And he's talking about the Bodhisattva path. And he'll bring in this idea of sameness, of samatha. And the language is a little bit um, old-fashioned. It's a little bit archaic. So um, it'll, it'll pay attention. It's hard to follow this. Now you should know that, that the Bodhisattva, because of his long-time engagement with the knowledge of Dharma selflessness, having understood the inexpressibility of all Dharmas as they really are, does not at all imagine any Dharma, Dharma meaning any phenomena, any experience, any event, anything that's going on as well, thing or, or teachings does not at all imagine any dharma. Otherwise, he would not truly grasp given thing only, what, it, what we imagine to exist, as precisely suchness only. It does not occur to him, this is the given thing only, this is, this is other, the suchness only. In clear understanding, the bodhisattva courses and courses in the supreme understanding with insight into suchness, and he sees thus that all dharmas as they really are, that is, as being absolutely the same. And seeing everywhere sameness, his mind likewise, he attains supreme equanimity. That's a big statement. Here's a little commentary by the, um, this wonderful um, um, Buddhist um, scholar and translator, uh, Janice, Janice Dean Willis. She says, this passage is clear in identifying suchness with sameness or essential nature because the realization of sameness, the Bodhisattva does not imagine any dharma. That is, and she's explaining imagine now, that is because he no longer possesses discursive thought or constructive imagination which superimposes, constructs, superimposes, constructs, judgments, designations, or distinctions. Because he no longer does that, he perceives no distinctions when viewing dharmas, but rather, when seeing dharmas, he sees suchness. So what Asanga is saying to, this is a gate in to see the sameness of all dharmas, to see suchness or as it isness, to see reality as it really is. This sameness or equilibrium of mind is um, I don't know. It's uh, when we try to bring this into our daily life, um, I, I myself see it as as work. It, I mean, I have to make an effort. I have to actually apply bodhicitta, 
I actually have to intend it because I recognize within myself that um, I like chocolate and I don't like vanilla, that I, I, I have this fixed view that I'm, I'm walking around with opinions or even an attitude. And so to actually open this up and to um, expand this view that includes its opposite, or at least divest that bias of less power, of less influence, is, is to me, um, it takes effort, it takes work. I remember one time, um, I'm from Wisconsin, so I remember one time um, back when I was really young, um, this is something you do in Wisconsin, you go bowling. <laughs> so I was, I was bowling with uh, a couple friends of mine, um, someone I played golf with, um, and his wife. And I'd known them for a long time. They were good friends, and I just loved them both. And, uh, and, uh, and they got into, a, into an argument right there while we were bowling. Of course, it's mandatory to drink beer when you bowl. In Wisconsin, at least, in Wisconsin. Yeah. So, you know, everyone was a little, little, uh, slightly loopy from, and, but um, I experienced them getting, and they must have felt really comfortable with me, getting into this argument with one another right in front of me, and right with me, basically. And it, it wasn't like they were soliciting my, um, you know, to help them back up their arguments or anything like that. They just, they were just going at it. And, um, and uh, at first I felt all this uh, tension and uh, resistance to this, you know, kind of this, these two people fighting with one another that I really I cared about both these people. She was a she was a wonderful person and a good mother and uh, um, had her own little business and she was a really uh, exceptional person and he was too um, a carpenter and uh, I just I just eventually I had to just let it let them argue and actually kind of appreciate the uh, uh, exchange. And of course it just petered out and, you know, they were, they were a well-established couple and they, it didn't go anywhere. But, but um, that was a little taste of, of me um, moving away from a kind of tense, resistant uh, position or position of choosing one side or another, but just accepting, accepting, tolerating the uh, this little argument that this couple was having. I remembered that uh, as a kind of insight that I had, that I was able to be with both. Where were we? Sam samata. Samatha, that's one aspect of the, uh, of equanimity, samatha, sameness or equilibrium of mind. 
The second one, and these are kind of complements to samatha, um, was called prasathatta. And prasathatta means um, basically to flow or to be fluid, to be flexible, to be adaptable, to actually uh, to be coursing on one's path, to be, um, it's, prashrabdhi is another term, to be, to be adaptable. And it also means to be not static, to be, um, to be ready to change, to be ready to move. That's prasathatta. And the last one is uh, anabhogata. And anabhogata means basically um, familiarity or, um, or naturalness. In other words, um, Saramathi is defining um, equanimity as um, this equipose or this equanimity of mind, this openness of mind that um, is spontaneous and flowing and natural. And that's it. Seeing all dharmas as the same as if it, as if it was a natural thing to do. So that's his, that's his definition of equanimity. So, um, here's my, oh, do you have something, Michael? Just a question about, um, that means holding contradictory ideas in your mind, completely contradictory, but accepting them as they are without making a distinction, right? Yeah, that could be an expression to to see to see within your mind that there are um, to see both sides of an aspect in your mind and accept them as as phenomena. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that would be an expression of equanimity. Yeah. Anyone else have any thoughts? Um, in this recent uh, things you were saying, you're using the word dharma, and I thought I heard you say in, in this instance we're taking dharma to mean, I almost was mapping it into just phenomena. Yeah, that's good. Is that a fair yeah, mapping? Yep, okay yeah, okay? yeah, yeah. Am I losing anything or dropping anything if I substitute? No, it's, it's complicated because dharma... dharma in some sense means the teachings, the teachings right. of the Buddha. But in this case... But in a in a broader sense, Dharma means um, means a bell ringing. Yeah. You know, it means phenomena. <laughs> okay. Yeah, All things right. happen. Yeah, yeah. So events, experiences. The mind notices something a, happening. Or a thing. You could say a thing. Or um, they're all dharmas. Yeah. It inspires me. Um, it 
reminds me of swimming. Swimming. Oh. Um, not in any particular way, but when you're floating on the back and you're in the middle suspended within the water, <coughs> sky above you, underneath the water. If you're oh. in a lake, you don't know what's swimming underneath you, and that can be terrifying at times, but just kind of trusting to be on the surface. Hmm. And that's a great that's a great metaphor. Yeah. Just that tiny movement to stay like you don't need a subtle like a big movement, you just need yeah. to make that subtle movement to stay right on top. That's that's prasatata, that second aspect of equanimity, that flowingness, that willingness to be as it moves, to adapt to it. Andy? Well, in, in the Heart Sutra, uh, in the English translation, we have that all dharmas are empty, and this has to do with what Hogan was asking. And sometimes I read it, and I think all dharmas are empty is like ultimately all the dharmic teachings are empty. And then all dharmas are empty, as in phenomena or irreducible aspects of phenomena or whatever it is that dharmas to mean. And does it mean both, or is it really emphasized one or the other in the Heart Sutra? Hmm. All dharmas are empty. I'd say both, you know? I'd say um, not negating anything, all dharmas are suffused, suffused with emptiness, or are, are, empty, are empty of own being, yeah. Even the teachings. I might be contradicting here by someone. Well, if there's economia, it's not a problem. <laughs> 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 I could <can> resist. <laughs> that was good. Well, um, let's, um, with our bodhicitta mind, with our mind of aspiration, let's. Um, Let's avow to be famous, like Naomi said, to be famous in this particular way, to be, how did she say it, like the buttonhole, like the pulley is famous, not because it did anything special, but because it never forgot what it could do. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Jokoji Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information about Jokoji, please visit us on the web at jokoji.org.